Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record that they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the comedian Michael Spicer. Michael's probably best known for creating The Room Next Door sketches, a series of films in which he plays an exasperated advisor talking down an earpiece to a series of idiot politicians. Michael's a good comedy brain. He produced Mandy, the Diane Morgan series, uh, and has a good comedy brain. He's a big fan of Monty Python. We were talking about this, and I said, what do you go to for comfort in Monty Python? And he went a bit quiet and said, series four. And I said, me too. And we both knew that series four is the series you're not meant to like. So, obviously, I had to get him on. today to witness the opening of a new box to replace the box which used to stand on the corner of Alberston Road and Sandwood Crescent. Owing to a programme of road widening being carried out by the Borough Council, the Alberston Road box was removed, leaving the wall box in Isha Road as the only box for the people of the Alberston Road area. Hello. Hi, Joe. There you go. It sounds like you're about to sit down and be questioned on Mastermind. Ooh. I know this is your specialised subject. Yes, it is. I know it's a very stressful thing to be uh, quizzed on. Yeah. Uh, and obviously we both know this inside out, so Ooh. this is going to be extremely high pressure. Yes, indeed. But what you've chosen is one of the most popular things in comedy, mm. its least popular iteration. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what a sweet spot to find. Yes, yes. Next week on the Golden Age of Ballooning, we examine the work of Glacier and Coxwell the English balloonists who ascended to a height of seven miles in 1862 without washing. There is also a book called The Golden Age of Ballooning, published by the BBC to coincide with the series. It's in an attractive hand-tooled binding, is priced £5, and failure to buy it will make you liable to a £50 fine or three months in prison. Growing up, there were these repeats, BBC repeated Monty Python series two and three, I think, yeah. in eight, 87, so I was about 10. Yeah, the perfect time to pick it up. Just absorbed it. But it wasn't something I felt I could really share with any of my... I had one friend I could share with. (laughs) 
and no one else really took to it. I think that's mainly because it was, for some reason, they put it on after Match of the Day. It was really late on a Saturday night. Yeah. But my mum and dad didn't really care too much about bedtime on a Saturday. In 40 minutes, we've something which really was completely different in 1969, and yet still maintains its bizarre appeal today. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus. So I watched it all, and then I remember Channel 4 showing Meaning of Life, because there seemed yeah. to be some sort of general reappraising because obviously there was it was 1989 was coming up so heading up to 20th anniversary 20th anniversary bbc2 will be taking us back to the beginning of monty python's high flying career there was a vibe about sort of reappraising it which now feels like insane it was only 20 years old 20 years so yeah i was i was working that out in terms of where we are now when how don't, you could don't, don't you should never ever do that peter feedies calls that mortality maths yeah and you must never do it exactly do it. exactly i'm terrible at maths and i'm very good at just blocking that out so um <laughs> This is Mr. Death. So when Meaning of Life was broadcast, I I remember because it was an 18 and was a lot more adult, the children at school then got some glee out of... uh, Did you you see? Ah, good afternoon, sir. And how are we today? Better. Better? Better get a bucket. I'm going to throw up. Uh, Gaston, a bucket for monsieur. Meaning of Life is kind of designed for playground gossip consumption. Do you see that bloke who exploded? Do you see there was, oh, there was women running with their boobs out? Yeah. I can wear whatever I want on my John Thomas. It's designed for a boy's playground. It is, it is. And even though I was like 12, I was still going, yeah, well, I, I like the earlier repeats. Of, uh... <laughs> We're going to find out that basically what this is about is just saying, I'm a terrible wanker. This is where I'm going with this chart, <laughs> is that I really love series four because it's just such a mess and it's so different and and i like the fact that the pythons like it and, and, and nobody else does nobody yeah. else nobody else even watched it it would seem i have to say to my embarrassment i don't think i ever saw all six of them <laughs> I remember that being a very, very big deal for me as a kid getting into Monty Python. I'd heard about it. I'd seen a couple of episodes. I think when I was a little kid, my dad had said, stay up late and watch this. Or yep. if, you were, if it was a sick day or a bank holiday, yep. you'd stay up late and watch it. I'd seen about two episodes. I got obsessed by them. I'd seen them once and learned them. I don't know how. I'd make little tapes of myself as a kid going, mm. the large, over and over again. <laughs> Not knowing what it meant. It was like like you'd been exposed <laughs> to like a, a religious uh, a liturgy that you'd mm. learned, a meaningless mm. liturgy. The large. <laughs> Then they said, I think it was on the run-up to the 20th anniversary, Mm. around then, they repeated seasons two and three, which I think are regarded by culture as the good series. The two series which have got all the sketches you know in. They didn't do season one while it's finding its feet, and they didn't show series four, which everyone agreed should be buried under the M3 and never spoken (laughs) of again. So I think there was that feeling of, of going, I've seen the ones everyone else has seen, yeah. but there's some secret Python. Morning, Squadron Leader! What house, Squiffy? How was it? Top hole! Bally Jerry pranked his kite right in the house of your father. Hairy blighter, dicky birded, feathered back on his sammy, took a waspy, flipped over on his petty harpers and caught his cat in the birdie. <laughs> It's perfectly ordinary banter, Squiffy. There's no iconic sketches in there. I don't think there's a certain type of person who loves Life of Brian and appreciates their humour, but they won't actually sit down and watch an episode because they might go insane. (laughs) He can't eat, honey. It makes him go plop plops. Oh, come on. Please try some. Oh, my God. 
Icelandic honey. No, there is no such thing. You mean you don't make any honey at all? No, no, we must import it all, every ballet drop. We are a gloomy people. It's so crikey cold and dark up there and there's only fish to eat. Fish and imported honey, all truth. We should probably explain what happened with Series 4 and what, yes. why it is. Why Series 4 is different, because it's not... Uh, the previous series are called Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yes. This is called Monty Python. This is called Monty Python. Because yeah. the BBC said you need to make sure that people know it's not the same. Yeah. And all the other series are 13 episodes, and this one is 1974, and it is six episodes. Six episodes. And they did this virtually after finishing Holy Grail, I think. Yeah. Which is bizarre. You'd think they want, they'd want some time off. If you read the diaries, they're happening exactly the same time. Are they time. happening they're, the same time? They're right? editing, they're showing screenings of Holy Grail while they're getting this together. Right. And it's, it's a mess. And the reason they do it is John Cleese has wanted to leave Monty Python for ages. He says they've done everything they could possibly do. And he finally goes, I'm not doing this new series. I walk out. So you're left with five guys left. They do one series. They did six episodes with the possibility they might do seven more. Seven more. And then Eric Idle apparently yeah. said no. In an interview, I remember he said that there was a tension between Terry and John that wasn't there. And so therefore they didn't produce their best work. Now, it's so bizarre to think about it because I think another seven episodes probably would have been incredible. Um, but it's so interesting thinking about John Cleese saying, well, we didn't do anything new in Series 3. I felt after the second series that we were beginning to repeat ourselves, and I didn't see any point in doing comedy um, or doing anything very artistic and creative if you were beginning to sort of repeat yourself, and it was the old sausage machine, you know, another 13 shows, just keep turning. The others just love the process. They really enjoyed doing it, and I don't think they felt that we were repeating. They didn't notice the difference in the material but it was clear to me. He says the only two sketches are Dennis Moore and the Cheese Shop that are any good or original. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how... Do, do you identify? Can you relate to that? Have can you, you have you watched it? Um, maybe he I hasn't just... watched Series Three of Monty Python. It's really good. John Cleese <laughs> should watch Series Series Three of Monty Python. great. My heart sank as I realised that I should never see the Oakhampton Bypass again. <laughs> Come on, dear. Wake up, dear. Mother! So, it was all a dream. No, dear. This is the dream. You're still in the cell. <laughs> He's like someone who goes and finds base camp and they won't build anything there. Series 3 is a beautiful city built on mm. terra incognita. They found this new place. In Series 2, they get it right. Mm. And in Series 3, they build these enormous mad castles on mm. this new territory they've got. Mm. And Cleese is going, no, I'm going to wander off and find something new. And you yeah. go, yeah, but look at the amazing stuff your mates are building on this place. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between him and Terry Jones. They're different sorts of restlessness. Yeah, I think also perhaps there's more of a kind of, surreal element to it you feel like the surrealness is coming from Palin and Jones yeah and the extraordinary wordplay is coming from Eric Idle and there's a lot of anger and an argumentative there's sketches. a rigor thing it's, yeah there's an Oxford Cambridge divide that runs down the middle of Python yeah. and one of the things that's really weird to understand when people try and analyze how Python works which obviously you and I will do off mic for the rest of the day <laughs> but there's an Oxford Cambridge divide and Palin and Jones are Oxford and Idle, Cleese and Chapman are Cambridge. Uh, and Terry Gilliam is Occidental, so he joins the Oxford side. Yeah. So it's Ox versus Cambridge. So there's a little divide down the middle of it. And that divide gives you your central double act within Python, mm. which for me is Terry Jones and John Cleese. 
which is a classic double act. There's a tall officer class one and a slightly more working class, lower middle class one who's full of energy. Mm. And it's the same dynamic as Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm. And it's the one that's in Bedazzled. It's that that thing yeah. they play brilliantly in Bedazzled. I think yeah. it happens a lot in comedy. Those two energies go really well together. The funny thing is I made a note of how sometimes it felt like some characters could have been played by Peter Cook. There's um, <laughs> there's a f- bit from the Michael Ellis department store episode yeah. where Graham Chapman is sitting at a complaints desk and he's on fire. <laughs> oh. But he's saying, uh, would you like a, a fire extinguisher? Oh no, better let it take its course. Yeah. It seems very, that's a very Peter Cook. And also, uh, I mean, this is Graham Chapman as well, but when he's talking about ice, as Icelandic honeybees, trying to sell Icelandic oh, honey. I love that sketch. And he says, do you think, of course there is an Icelandic honey. Listen, cowboy, I got a job to do. It's a stupid, pointless job, but at least it keeps me away from Iceland, all right? Again, yeah. it feels like that could have been Peter Cook doing a monologue well, there are, to There Dudley are Moore. fragments, Cleese left, but left behind some writing. And he, but he's a writer on Yes, this. he is a writer. Um, the Michael Ellis <clears> episode, <throat> the one that's all set in a, in a department store, which mm. is a great way of stringing together loads mm. and loads of shop sketches. Yes. And it's occurred to me this time, around yeah. python loves a shop sketch all your shop sketch can happen in a department yeah. store it's a brilliant excuse for a linked episode yeah but that episode is lots lots of stuff that was left over from the holy grail writing sessions the the first draft and it's all set in harrods and oh, they look yes, for the holy grail yes, in, yes. Harrods. in harrods and I, think I remember that yeah so there's lots of cleese left over so he gives them a load of material and you can really feel that michael ellis episode has got loads of cleese uh, irritated people in shops, yeah. sketches. There's lots of that. The toupee sketch. Yeah. Nice, solid, old-fashioned, proper Python sketch yeah. writing. Someone told you we all had toupees? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> what do you mean, obvious? His is undetectable. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a different colour for a start. It doesn't fit in with the rest of its hair. It sort of sticks up in the middle. Well, it's better than yours. Yes. I'm not wearing one. <laughs> when people look at Python, they keep looking at the writing partnerships as double acts. But actually, the, the Python double act is between Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. And when it splits up, you can feel it in series four. Yeah. The whimsy takes over. The whimsy takes over, but it feels almost like it's written by modern artists. It's, yeah. It's, it feels like you could show that at the Tate. There's like layers and layers and layers. Of yes. it's, like, it's like they've gone, this isn't it though. I'm going to add another little bit. And a kind of... Sp- Spike Milligan way, I guess, yeah. adding an extra layer and an extra layer until you don't know where you are. I mean, there are times it's just it's just so uh, sort of Catherine Wheel of different ideas. The old here, and Mr The first time I watched this series for a long time, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed watching it again. Not surprised, delighted by how much I enjoyed watching it again. And I, the first time I'd watched it without watching any previous Python. Mm. I'd not watched any, any Python shows for ages. Mm. If the previous three series hadn't existed, this would be regarded very, very, very highly. I think so, Because yeah. this is the one that's more like Q. Yeah. Everyone always says, including Milligan, that the problem with Python is it's a rip-off of Spike Milligan. And... The truth is that Python isn't a ripoff of Spy Milligan. Season four is, because that's the one where the whimsy, the Oxbridge whimsy, and the absolute love of Milligan's freewheelingness, which Pedro yeah. and Jones completely represent, yeah. is allowed free reign. Mm. Cleese is a massive goon show fan, but I always said Cleese was far more of a Marty Feldman and Barry Took fan. He yeah. likes 
precision. He likes that craftsmanship. He's a big Feldman fan. Yeah. He's far more round the horny, really. Yeah. In that kind of way. The the person who phoned the others bubbling with excitement that he'd found it, he'd cracked it when he saw Q, was Terry mm. Jones, mm. who wanted to borrow that anything goes feeling. Yeah. You want to see the Q, the Milligan series of Python? It's season four. I am so obsessed with them that when people say, oh, it's, it's hit and miss, I just can't, I can't see that. I can never see that. I can't see which. There was an, an interview with John Cleese on the Omnibus 20th anniversary documentary in which he said, well, I saw some of the repeats and I think there's probably one or two sketches that are good in every episode, but there's so much dross. And I remember thinking, John Cleese, you are incorrect. Yeah. I know you're a Python. You are incorrect about this. People love it. Hello, madam. Oh, hello. Oh, you must have come about... Finishing the sentences, yes. Oh, well, uh, perhaps you'd like to... Come through this way, certainly. <laughs> there's a misunderstanding, I think. I, I, there's a lovely quote from Eric Idle. He said that he said it's really hard to take compliments about Python, which just shows how competitive they were. These are Oxbridge people. They're very competitive. He said it's very hard to take compliments because you only did a fifth or a sixth of it. And so people keep complimenting you on the five-sixths of it that isn't you. And I went, that tells me loads about you, Eric Idle, as a collaborative person. But there's a feeling, I think, because they are competitive, that they will look at it and they'll, they'll go, which are the good sketches? And mm. is it your ones? To the public and to Python fans, there's a real feeling this is a, a lovely collaboration between these six amazing minds mm. that will never happen again. And you only no. want to watch them just do this. I love the individual stuff, but I want to watch them do this. But to them... It was a showcase for what they could do. Mm. There's a fight within Python sometimes between yeah. individual expressions, showing off your dazzling chops, the soloists, the guys who can shred on the comic guitar, and the band that's probably being run mainly by Palin and Jones, mm. who really like the band. And every Thursday night, there's bloody cabaret in the bar, fishing some tiny emaciated dago with nine-inch hips, and some fat bloated tarts with their hair cream down and a big arse presenting flamenco for foreigners. This palette is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to see its maker. This is a late palette. And I think that for the public, they're a band, and for them, sometimes they're individuals. And that fighting that gave them their energy and that that spark, for them, is very, very real. And for us outside, you want, I just want to watch them all together. And that's why mm. I think I love watching the whole episodes, because I want to watch all those flavours. Mm. I don't want to pick my two favourite. I like the chocolate box. Mm. I don't want that thing that Quality Street do where it's all the purple ones. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> There's still things we wanted to write. There's still performances we wanted to do. There was still a great deal of energy. Um, in the group. But I don't think Python ever really works without everybody there. Well, I mean, you you will probably disagree with me about this, but I have never been a fan, not because I don't I don't really appreciate what they were doing, because I know they're they're extremely talented, but I've never been a huge fan of Rutland Weekend Television and Ripping Yarns. Yeah. Um and other Projects that, you know, Yellowbeard. I don't like Yellowbeard very really? much. Really? Um, That's going to lose us a lot of <laughs> listeners. Please don't, don't, don't text in. Please don't text in. Don't send a postcard in. All the, the big, the Yellowbeard yeah. massive are coming yeah, for us now. I know, I know. I'm really sorry. I know <laughs> Yellowbeardas, you're, you're very uh, antagonistic when you want to be. Mr. Prostitute, who is responsible for... <laughs> Nail that man's foot to the deck. What's vitally important is I'm watching all this when I'm 10. Yeah. All I can see are grown-ups being funny and silly. Yeah. And I don't really care about the... The weird thing is, is when you're getting older, 
you have to find out all the things you don't want to find out about, about them not really getting on and falling out and, you know. Should we pretend they were all best friends? I, oh, my God. Joel, I wrote, that help? I wrote an annual. I actually did an annual Whoa. called Monty Python's New Flights. <laughs> oh, my God. Why am I admitting this? But you're, you're saying that as if that's a weird thing to do. But you look at what happened when we were growing up and they were repackaging Python for the first mm. time for a new audience, which mm. they did. The way they did that for us is they got Steve Martin to pretend he was the seventh Python and do yes. a documentary. And then a few years later, they got Eddie Izzard to do it. Yes. I think it's completely normal. All comedians want to be secretly another Python. They want these guys back together again. They're their heroes. You want the Beatles to reform. Mm. You're wasted, Mr. Lemon. You're wasted. I love Faulty Towers. I'd like yeah. to be in that, you know. Would you? I'd love to be in the Monty Python. Yeah. You know, rather than the Beatles That's the in a way. That's the thing that saved us. The magic of Python is the hit and miss. People forget this about sketch comedy. They keep insisting, like culture secretaries, that we only have hits, forgetting <laughs> that the fun of an exploratory art form mm. is it explores. Mm. If you get to the end of Python and choose your Monty Python's best bits, like oh. they keep compiling, they'll be good sketches. They'll be technically good sketches, but yeah. it's not Monty Python. Monty no. Python has to miss no. as much as it hits, and you have to disagree about what your favourite bits are, like reading a comic. Yeah. It all has to be in there yeah. because it's not about the individual sketches. It is about a feeling of being lost in this world yeah. where anything can happen. And one of the things that can happen is a sketch can go wrong. Well, now it's time for racing. So let's go straight over to Epsom and Brian McNulty. Well, over here at Epsom, there are chances of plenty for those who want to make a good start in... Um, dentistry. Dentistry. It's a well-off suburb, so most people have their own teeth. And surgeries are opening at the rate of four or five a week. In every episode, there was always some sort of theme. Yeah. And that always gave it its own identity. Yes, you don't it want to felt, break that. No, and it felt like if you took a sketch out of that episode, it wouldn't it wouldn't work as a best of bit. It's like yeah. it's like the flow won't work. It's like one of my favorite episodes is in episode 1 where the theme was funerals. <laughs> it was like uh, uh just uh, there were so many sketches about undertakers and burying coffins and things. And half the time the audience is is totally baffled. They yeah. just don't know what's going on and it kind of adds to the darkness of the episode yes. and of course it's 70s and it's so dingy and everything's so grey well here in high street epsom there are ample opportunities for all kinds of redevelopment that world the world includes not only those guys and what they're dressed like and watching it as a period piece as a kid mm. that every time they went out onto the high street the vans and the, <laughs> what the roadworks look like and the fronts <laughs> of the shops and mm. that redolence of it I wanted to live in West London in 1972 mm. because it looked like a magical place. Yes. It was as it was as it was as vivid a fantasy space as Tatooine was for me. <laughs> I wanted to go there. I want to go there to that yeah. dirty place with yeah. all those horrible men. I want to go there and I want to be there when everyone's on strike yes. and there are all these names like Reginald Maudlin and Paul Fox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there! It's a fantasy world yeah. because it's yeah. you forget it was real and it was contemporary. By the time yeah. we got to see it, it was old and it was like the same thrill you get watching the monkeys or something. It was yeah. set in the past. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. And the, and the weird thing is, of course, is that they occasionally went to, in order to do something that needed a beach or sunshine, they'd go to Painton when it was really rainy and cloudy and horrible. There was no sunlight in Britain until no, like 1995, didn't appear, I think. It didn't appear to be. No, if you're watching <laughs> Monty Python, it's like even when they were trying to create some sort of coolness, they just never seemed cool. It never worked for some The whole reason. of Britain on 16 mil is overcast. Yeah, and it's, it is, it's a really yeah. specific feeling. Alex Diamond. 
international crime fighter and playboy. Fast-moving, tough-talking, and just one of the many hundreds of famous people who suffer from lumbago. It gives mm. it a lovely texture, and I think, mm. it, and you lose yourself in it. But I think the thing about immersing yourself in the whole thing, there's a revisionism about Python, which mm. is that lots of it now, if we're honest about it, isn't that good. And when you look back on it, we got a bit overexcited about it, and it's not <laughs> that great. And no one really watches it anymore. Mm. And I think the lovely thing about doing this this week and you suggesting to do this is you're the first person who said to me in ages, do you know what? It's all really good. <laughs> and the reason it's all really good is because those bits you take out don't work mm. without the rest of it. Yeah. In fact, they do. That, I mean, they might technically be a good sketch. That's what John Cleese is saying when he says that there are two or three good sketches. Yeah. They're technically well written, but they're not as good unless they're buffered up against some stuff that is meandering and silly. They need to be set in context. And the context is a bunch of very clever, very funny performers exploring. Mm. And if they found the results and have just given you their results, that's nowhere near as interesting as watching them go and find those results. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's why in order to watch it now, you have to watch it in a way that you watch other old comedies. You have to tune in for a bit mm. in the way that you have to watch Duck Soup <laughs> or Way Out West. Yeah. As in, yeah, it's still just as funny, but tune in a bit. It's like, yeah. I don't know, the, the first couple of minutes of a musical. Mm. You've got to go, they're going to burst into song in a minute. This is mm. done in a different way than we do it now. It won't all be hits. Yeah. Some of it will be meandering. Some of it will be set in places you don't recognise. Mm. You'll have to tune into it. And then once you do that, it's the combination of all the moods and all the flavours that makes Monty Python. It isn't the best bits. It's not the films. No. It's this. No. I tried that. I once got down to 56 stone, boy. <laughs> I couldn't stay like I had to take potatoes wherever I went. But don't you find it amazing that as a 10-year-old or, you know, 12, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, there are things I'm not understanding here, but for some reason it is still all making complete sense. I will lap all of this up. Last year, some of us from Yellow River, we got on a party to go and see the ballet in Montreal. Look, I, I was uh, wondering if... Oh, we had a marvellous time. It was uh, Margot Fontaine dancing Les Sylphides. Oh, it was beautiful. Look, do you know... Do you know how old she is? Who? Margot Fontaine. Uh, no. She's 206. Oh. As a kid, I didn't understand anything in the grown-up world. The television was 99% things that weren't for me, whether it was... Mm. Kojak or Nationwide or the news. It was full of things I didn't understand. Python didn't sound any different than the rest of television. I was used to, as a kid, watching things where I got 50% of the references. Well, everyone is talking today about the Third World War, which broke out this morning. But here on Nationwide, we're going to get away from that for a bit and look instead at the latest theory that sitting down regularly in a comfortable chair can rest your legs. And I think watching it as an adult now, you go, oh, this would fly over the heads of kids. No, no, kids are very, no. very forgiving. Because no. kids are used to not understanding things. Yeah. The world is confusing and weird and baffling and cartoonish to kids. And Monty Python said, yeah, mm. it is to us as well, yeah. as grown-ups. Yeah. It wasn't a barrier to me that I didn't know what they were talking about. No. A lot of the time it was a springboard for yeah. learning about things. Mm. Like the Freemasons. I yeah. didn't clue what the Freemasons were, but there was this sketch yeah. that said that they shook hands in a very strange way and rolled their trousers up. Yeah, and rolled their trousers up. I think most people's knowledge things. of Freemasonry comes from I, that sketch. I think so too. Yeah, yeah they, they were sort of a, a, a peep round the corner of a door to mm. adulthood. Certainly mm. as a kid, I remember thinking, I'll learn this. It isn't for me, mm. but I really, really want it. Yeah. Which one is from Bueller? And Admiral Trapitz? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
en van Nulle en Leichner. Oh ja. En 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 Holweg. En van Gronberg. Gronberg? Dat is Gronberg. Ja. En Zimmerman. Ja. En 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 Klimt. Oh Klimt. En wat je weet door Helmut? We must we must ring the government. This is the government. One of the keys to how Python works is it's full of abstract language that is specific to an elite group, an in-group, historians, philosophers, yeah. that, that's presented to you just for the rhythm of its sound. Mm. And then by learning it, because you don't know what it means, you then have access to that. And I love that. They would teach you philosophers' names and the names of sports teams. And yes. Things. You pick it up. And so because of that, you learn it. Like yeah. you learn dinosaur names as a kid. Yes. I got obsessed by learning all the knowledge that Python had in it. Yeah. And that meant I ate all of it up. And I think that's why, as a much older person, season four is magic. Yes. Because I know the rest of it. I've learned the rest of this. And this is new. The stuff I haven't learned off by heart yet. Yeah. Yeah, in- indeed. It's it's odd, really. It's like, a, it feels like Michael Palin's almost like in the sort of Paul McCartney role in this one, because he's just everywhere. And it seems like he's got his fingerprint all over it, his, him and Terry Jones. Yeah. This um, is theirs, I think. It seems like theirs. It feels like every historical sketch is written by them, and there's yeah. a lot of it. I took history at school, and I probably learned more from <laughs> Monty Python sketches. Yeah. There were little potted histories of famous people that I'd never heard of before. They get the information right because it's they funny. They get the information right. It's just the way the fact that the first scene of the first episode is Michael Palin under a sink talking about the Montgolfier brothers. <laughs> the golden age of ballooning can be said to begin in 1783 when the Montgolfier brothers made their first ascent in a fire balloon. And it's all accurate. Yeah. He's not saying anything funny. Occasionally he'll go, come on, come on. On the eve of that, come on, momentous ascent, the brothers took one last look at their craft as it stood on a field of an orsay. <laughs> the fuck out of his mouth. There's a running joke. Uh, the, the best place to see it is Holy Grail where there is a running joke that drives a lot of, certainly Palin and Jones' sketches, which is about obsession. And also how funny it is if the wrong people have a university-level education in something. Yes. Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! Which I think is quite a generous thing, because universal education for the working classes was new in the 60s. So there's a novelty that plumbers and screechy old ladies know everything about philosophy or or Louis XIV. (laughs) We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. This idea that that people have a a very arcane knowledge, and they'll dump all this stuff. And I'm always stunned thinking, this is before Wikipedia. This would have been a big book off the bookshelf to write. And they love that. I do think... I, I think that I think we're one minute into a sketch and already there's just so much this the, the years and the place names and everything. <laughs> I've been looking it up in my bath. Louis the Fourteenth died in seventeen seventeen. Different languages sometimes, and I'm just thinking, wow, yeah, they would have had to. They should. They must have gone to the British Library or something. No, some atheist matter, of course. He got placé la boîte. He autrefois était placé au coin de Alverston Road, a Sandwood Crescent. Parce que du projet pour l'élargissement de la rue qui fait par le You forget this is a revolution that's only just started happening about maybe mm. 10 years earlier. We're sort of beyond the fringe and things. Mm. Comedy has stopped being a working class profession, has become a middle class profession. And it happens with the rise of the professional comedy writer associated with London scripts, Bob Monkhouse being having gone to Dulwich School. Your writers are coming from better backgrounds. Mm. They used to be northern working-class comics who'd go oh. and do the halls. You've suddenly got university comedy, and its tone is to wear its erudition very heavily. Monsieur Necker, 
the man who introduced so many valuable reforms and proved so popular despite his opposition to Mirabeau's policy of <laughs> issuing assignats? And it's a little flag that waves to go, hey, uh, education's got more uh, accessible recently. Did you learn some stuff at school as well? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair Ophelia, nymph, in thy orisons be all my sins remembered. So anyway, you've got the girl on the bed and her legs are on the mat. <laughs> if you are part of this new generation, you've got access to polytechnics and uh, exams and the university grant system only comes in for ordinary people in the mid-60s. This is a mm. brand new thing where this wouldn't be seen as elitist as much as it would be seen as a joyful expression of yeah. a new comic voice. And I've certainly never heard of Basingstoke in Westphalia. It's a municipal borough, sir, 27 miles north-northeast of Southampton. What? Chief Southampton in Westphalia? <laughs> yes, sir. Bricks, clothing, and nearby the remains of Basing House burned down by Cromwell's cavalry. Uh, who, who compiled this map? Cole Porter, sir. I think you're right. There's genuine joy. In, I mean, these people are in their 20s at the beginning, in their yeah. mid-20s, and they are just firing off ideas. You can sense the energy, the desire to get so much crammed into half an hour. For me, the following Sunday, after I'd watched it, yeah. I would then start writing and drawing and recording and doing everything that I'd just seen. It inspired yeah. me to produce similar surreal work. What's strange is it's incredibly clever and wordy and dense, but it's also incredibly achievable mm. uh, because it just says, what do you know? Mm. Dump all that onto a page. It's a club of saying, do you learn something? Share it. Uh, maybe there's a funny take on this. And all jokes are jokes about shared experiences. When they were writing for the Frost Report or something, they'd say, well, write something about the shared experience of going to a garage. Oh, your gear leave was loose, isn't it? <laughs> That's where your trouble is. I can't get into third half of the time. Well, you must expect uh, teething troubles in these new models. Best gearbox made. But there's no knowledge from outside basic observation. Mm. If they'd said we're doing this about parrots. Remarkable bird the Norwegian blue, innit? Beautiful plumage. It's full of euphemisms for death. Mm. The script editors or the producer would say, mm. why are you doing this? Mm. But removing that valve that's saying it has to be relatable and saying about anything you want, you can then insert a load of arcane knowledge about historical treaties oh. or ballooning into the same shape sketch mm. by not being limited by observation. They get the best of both worlds. They get mm. this thing where they, they do gen these are genuinely sketches about what it's like to argue with a stubborn person. Yeah. I mean, they are experimental. They're fun in the same way as Radiohead or Captain Beefheart fun. <laughs> Cause it's not just the same three chords you've heard before. Yeah. They're finding new tunes. Gone. <laughs> What's gone, dear? Nothing, nothing. No, just, just like the word, it gives me confidence. Gone. Gone. It's got a sort of woody quality about it. Gone. Gone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ferdinand von Zeppelin was born in Constance in 1838. The brother of Barry Zeppelin, the least talented of the 14 Zeppelin brothers. There is some really broad slapstick visual humour, like Barry Zeppelin inflating rather than oh, his balloon. what a great joke. That's a great joke. It reminded me of the seaside sketch from the first series of Terry Jones trying to find a place to change. Yeah, the silent movie stuff. I was watching that and I was thinking, are they parodying this or is this coming from a genuine place. They like, love that stuff. They do love it. And it's weird that... The Silly Walks video. Yeah. The, the film, you, you really like Silly Walks, watch this. The fish slapping dance. They mm. like a good wordless like bit of slapstick. A and good bit. And, and the it, Queen Victoria handicap. Loads and loads of Queen Victoria's <laughs> running in a straight now. Moved up to challenge Queen Victoria with Queen Victoria losing ground. And Queen Victoria tucked in neatly on the stand side with a clear view. Queen Victoria still the back marker as they... One of my favourite things is, I am an idiot. Look. Terry Jones doing all of those things. When Terry yeah. Jones nails his hand to the back hand. of the truck, that's a stunt as good as Raiders. He gets dropped <laughs> behind a truck for quite a lot. There are sparks coming off his feet. <laughs> very, very Milligan. It just shows a love of Q and that sort of slightly mm. old-fashioned slapstick. It's fine. His director was also Monty Python's director, Ian McNaughton. He does get overlooked a lot, given that he was involved so much in their progress and their development and also directed, and now for something completely different. I don't know how he did this. No. I was watching this guy. Apparently they were sort of saying he'd kind of lost a bit of interest. They're all heavy drinkers and it was a bit of a mess by this mm. point. There's a lot of heavy boozing going on. Everyone talks about Chapman, but everyone is drinking too much. Mm. It has got a real sort of saloon bar, smoky yeah. vibe to it. Apparently the lovely sketch on Westminster Bridge where Palin's a policeman, yes. he's absolutely pissed in that. He's basically, they've been, they've been drinking all day. A lot of wine. You can't I, tell he's great. You can't park here, you know. Right. I'm taking that in for a forensic examination. But that that is one take for a lot of the time. It's astonishing. It's one take on Westminster Bridge. He crosses the road. He stops real traffic. (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) The Chaldeans, who used to inhabit the area in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, their helmets was of the modular restrained kind of type. And also, now that Cleese is out, Michael Palin is virtually everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're in the department store, he's outside, he's in the lift, and then he's <laughs> in the person that you're meeting. Palin is now accepted as everyone's favourite Python, and yet everyone's not meant to enjoy the series. He's in most. No. That, that, that <laughs> this is, is your Palin series. Yeah, yeah. The whole of Golden Age of Ballooning is just he wrote that on his own. He's trying out where he's going to go with ripping yarns. Yes. He's trying out his voice, and it's some beautiful performances. Yes. Now, sir, I wish to protest in the strongest possible terms... Yours sincerely, Brigadier N.F. Marwood, Kit, brackets retired. Read that back, will you, Brian? And when he had built up Cedron, he set horsemen there, and an host of footmen to the end that issuing out, they might make outroads upon the ways of Judea, as the king commanded them. 
Good. Pop it in an envelope and bang it off. Even though Idle is probably right that losing that engine, mm. losing that fire in the middle of it between the, the Cleese faction and the Jones faction loses some of its rigour. It is really nice just to see the whimsical people take over for a bit. Even though Python is something that happens when all six of them get together and it's that combination and that is lacking, it's not like this version of it isn't what you tune in to Monty Python for. Mm. And weirdly, I think if you're tuning in for Monty Python only waiting for the rigorous logic, Mm. there are definitely some (laughs) other comedies I can recommend. (laughs) Yeah. Father, Father, what are you doing? I'm making a boat. What? Uh, it's a cutty sock. It's a model I've been making in the dark for some years now. Well, wouldn't it be better with the light on? No, no, I'm making it in the dark. That's the point. Oh, dear. <laughs> not as accurate as I thought. It's not the cutty sock. Well, it hasn't got its sails on yet. Oh, well. I'll, uh, I'll have a look at it in the dark room in the morning. You suggested doing this because both you and I admitted to each other that if we sit down of an evening to watch a Monty Python yeah I'll tend to pick one from series four right mine's Light Entertainment War which I will mm. watch when drunk and did for years that was yeah. the standard one I approached the shocker about the series is that it's really really good yeah it is I don't know why it's like the way it is uh, because you know <laughs> that John Cleese is involved in it but obviously he's not involved enough but it still retain it still retains enough Python from previous yeah. years. So I just love, and I can't explain why, but there's always a moments throughout the four se- series. I always, I always want to say seasons now. You I've mustn't. been indoctrinated to say seasons. The Americans keep stealing Python off us. Let's claim it back. Series. Series, series of television. Series of television where they're at a loss. They're at a loose end on TV. Yeah. And they're like, when's the next sketch? They're just standing there. They're just waiting for something. And at the end of Golden Age of Ballooning, for some reason, Chapman's butler is is just praised and <laughs> and gets curtain and gets curtain calls. <laughs> and Eric Idle and Carol Cleveland are, uh, are just there, like, why waiting. is why is this? Thank you at all. Not at all, sir. I've enjoyed being in it. Right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Manzel. And it reminded me of, of the young one's postman when yes. everybody's waiting for this postman to do his two lines and then get out. And they're just, the, the idol standing about on a set is absolutely hilarious. Here is your package! Oh, thank you! It's about the lack of rigour. What Cleese leaves and takes with him is the rigour. He's about to go off and do rigorous farce with 40 Towers. He's a person who wants rigour. The whole point of Python was to not have that rigour, to escape from the restrictions of people who knew how it was done and the script editors on the Frost Report. The fact that it's got a minute for people to just stand around and wait for a curtain call to happen or for something to go wrong, that's why you're watching it. Yeah. Again, if you do the best of Monty Python and, and snip out that fat, yeah. snip that loose stuff out, that's the good stuff. Yeah. One of the jokes with Python is that it's very hard for things to get started yeah. because people get distracted. Yes. They start dump, info dumping stuff about French kings on you. Yeah, yeah. It's always an adventure that can't get started. You can't run away in Life of Brian because someone wants to haggle about the price of a beard. Yes. The idea is that the, the exciting adventure you're on gets knocked badly yeah. by someone becoming obsessed yeah everyone's making excuses <laughs> why they can't get the story started 
And season four is full of. Yeah. Even though they say, we'll do some narrative now. And you, go, you won't. The, the yeah. joke is that it will keep getting... Yeah. De- well, I mean, there's a great bit where he goes... <laughs> there's an actual thing about Louis XIV getting... <laughs> Stealing the plans for the golden... That's a, that's an actual plot point. Yeah, it's a good sitcom. It can be a work at it. It's great. Yeah, it's really good. And then it goes back to Carol Cleveland and Eric Idle, and he says, I've got the plans. I gave them some fake plans. And yeah. you think, that's a great twist. And then straight after that, she says, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he, and he says, let me put my tongue in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. And then he, all he wants to do is snog her from there. And, that, and then it doesn't, get any, it doesn't go anywhere else after that. And that is so beautifully frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the problem. Is I think the previously Python had said, even if we pretend we're about to do uh, an exciting yes. event on the high seas, yeah. it would start and then someone would get distracted by talking about, <laughs> about Wolverhampton Wanderers or something. It would yeah. get distracted yeah. and you'd go, it's okay, it's only a sketch. Mm. What Payton and Joseph said is, why don't we do some stuff where there's some story? Yeah. Like, yeah, but you put story into Python where the core joke yeah. is this manic changing of subjects yeah. and inability to focus. Yeah. You're going to frustrate people because you promised them that Mr. Neutron would be a superhero yeah. story. I know. And it isn't. And it isn't at all. <laughs> Could he be stopped in time? Got a bit of work to do there, then. Yes, it is a problem. Mrs. Ottershaw never used to bother. Then, of course, she was very old. She was 206. <laughs> That's going. If you need a hand, I'll send Frank round. He could do with a bit of exercise. That <laughs> <laughs> <Pet> old bastard. <laughs> He just doesn't do anything. He no. doesn't do anything for half an hour. And every time they go back to him, <laughs> he's, he's engaged in some terrible small talk with a pepper pot. And he's actually genuinely interested, but he says it in his neutron voice. Yeah, yeah. like, It blah, is blah, good blah. for the shops. Good for the- <laughs> there is something I have to tell you. Yes, Mr. N? I have just won a Kellogg's cornflake competition. <laughs> because the whole point of Python is you can't get things started. It's frustrating to watch. Mm. And you can see them struggling with that at the same time as they're just breaking into doing Holy Grail mm. and finding out what David Quantic calls the Oxbridge plot, which is all your sketches strung along someone else's story. And they really struggled with that with Holy Grail and Life of Brian to make sure the sketches went somewhere. Mm. And what you see in season four is that if you do try and do that thing that Palin and Jones want to do, which is tell a story, mm. the fact that you're only interested in breaking the rules of narrative fucks your story yeah and anyone watching it going i was hoping it would have the narrative consistency of the goodies yes it doesn't no it doesn't i mean that's probably what where the goodies will always triumph won't they because the stories actually work yeah because the stories work but because of this desire to confuse and 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 just be generally surreal there's no room for it so inevitably chapman's butler comes in halts everything and the credits go (laughs) yeah not at all sir i've enjoyed being in it If nothing else, to its own detriment, this series is endlessly surprising. Watson's again, I was fascinated by that. I went, this is the best demonstration I've ever seen of the two competing drives Mm. of surprising jokes and solid narrative and why they fight against each other, why it's so rare to get an airplane Or a Holy Grail, something that's got some sort of narrative, but also anything goes. Or a very, uh, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I think Channel 4 really should have commissioned a full series of The Weekenders with Rick and Bob. Yes. (laughs) Because that is... Yeah, yeah. That's the closest thing. That's a narrative with surreal things happening. It's the closest thing you've got. I mean, that is is art. Jim, what the handbag carnival partridge underfelt's going on here? Bob, it's like this. 
these three gentlemen here are aliens and they need my specialty meat product to feed their queen so she may pupate and thus ensure the survival of their race. So I've given it to them in exchange for them being my slaves for half an hour. I yeah. want every joke you can do. I want top secret, mad magazine style yeah. things where... As long as something followed the logic of a joke, mm. it will be the next beat of a story. Yes. And yet somehow strung along a story. Yeah. They're really rare because I really think rare. they're really hard to do. Yeah. And they are regarded when you read critics to go, oh, do you know what's uh, the best film out of Roxanne or The Jerk? And the answer is it's The Jerk. Yeah. Because that's harder to do than Roxanne. And I like both those films. Yeah. But Steve Martin managed to make a stand-up routine into a story about someone I cared about. That that's, is a miracle. Yeah. yeah, a miracle. And the Python... Season four, if you're a comedy nerd, is a perfect demonstration of those two impulses. Yeah. Grinding, Grinding against, against each other. Grinding against each other. Every yeah, exactly. Turn. Exactly. Oh, Joseph, all you think about is balloons. All you talk about is balloons. Your beautiful house is full of bits and pieces of balloons. Your books are all about balloons. Every time you sing a song, it is in some way obliquely connected with balloons. Everything you eat has to have the word balloon incorporated in the title. Your dogs are all called balloon <laughs> You tie balloons to your ankles in the evening. Do that. Well, no, you don't do that. But you do duck down and shout, hey, balloons, when there are none about. <laughs> your whole life is becoming obsessively balloonic, you know. Having mentioned Carol Cleveland, there's something I did notice re-watching this, is that She's got stuff to do now. Yes. It's lovely. The she's room. got lines, she's got jokes, she's got characters. When you consider her first sketch for Monty Python was just not saying anything yeah. and just being ogled by Eric yeah. Idle. Yes, this looks a sort of thing. May I just try it? Certainly, madam. Oh, sorry. So sorry. <laughs> yes, that's fine. Is that on account, madam? Yes. But it was lovely to see Carol Cleveland do that because, you know, okay, all this talk about the seventh member. Creatively, obviously, she probably had no input at all, no. but she's great. This is a very good series for seventh members. Both seventh Pythons, yep. Neil Innes and Carol Cleveland, get yeah. a lovely, lovely chance to do things. Yes, and yes. they get a chance to contribute and be funny. There's more room mm. for them. And I think this is pointed towards, there was a debate, I think, briefly, if this is in Palin's diaries, about saying, should we officially offer a seventh Python role? Oh, right. Uh, is, is there way we pulling in Neil and making Neil Innes the sixth Python so we can have him in more sketches mm. and pay him properly and things? Mm. They were talking, obviously, they never offer that, that money to Carol Cleveland because no, she's, she's just doing typing and washing up. Uh, <laughs> but there's, there was a feeling of saying, should we open it up? If we're losing John, should we bring someone else in? Mm. Um, and it's got a generosity that gives it a few different textures. Like there's, yeah. there's some lovely stuff from Neil Innes. The music is better. Yes. yes. There, there's a chance for wistfulness, like Innes' little song by the Spitfire. <laughs> Does a dream begin? Does it start with a good night kiss? Is it conceived or simply achieved? When does a dream begin? When does a dream begin? It's gorgeous, that. And also, I think it feels a little bit just from his animations that Terry Gilliam is sort of checking out a little bit because yeah. by doing that because the thing is with John Cleese gone Terry Gilliam didn't step up did he no. he stays in these kind of peripheral roles he does his grotesques does his grotesques but his animations don't seem quite as inventive there's and fewer they cer- of them. there's fewer of them they don't join sketches together no. as well as they used to so therefore you've got this 
strange opening for indies yeah. and others to come in and, and share the spotlight a bit. And you get contributions from outside. So you get, there's a sketch by Douglas Adams, co-wrote with Graham Chapman. Because yes. the thing is, one of the reasons that Cleese leaves is that, as he said quite rightly, he was shackled to an alcoholic. Graham now had a really serious drinking habit. And I was the guy who met with him every day. You see, the others didn't. The others just saw him when we got together to read, but I was carrying him. And at one stage, he couldn't remember in the afternoon what we'd written in the morning. I mean, it was that bad. Everyone in the team went, who's going to work with Graham today? Yeah. And the answer yeah. is, no one wants to work with Graham. Yeah. So Graham ends up writing with some outsiders. So he writes some stuff with Douglas Adams. Oh, yes, you must be Mr Williams. Well, do take a seat. Uh, what, what seems to be the trouble? I've just been stabbed by your nurse. Uh, yeah, yes, well... I'd probably better have a look at you then. Look, uh, could you fill in this form first? And he writes, I think, probably my favourite sketch of the whole series, with Neil Innes. Most awful family in Britain mm. is a Chapman and Innes sketch. Mm. If you were to talk about, is there a classic Python mm. sketch in season four? It's that. Yeah. There now follows a party political broadcast on behalf of the Liberal Party. Pratt, back to Pratt. Pratt again, a long ball out to Pratt. And now Pratt is on the ball, a neat little flick back inside to Pratt, who takes it I've run out of beans. I really like this ain't a week, but really unclog me. Oh, do be careful. Sorry, Mum. I mean, a lot of the other side of the but I never had a single bowel movement with them recto puffs. Now, if we... Oh, sorry, Mum. If we lived in Rhodesia, there'd be someone to mop that up for you. <laughs> It's four or five character gags running in parallel. They're not talking to each other. So it's just, you follow anybody. There's something so funny about that. It's it's arranged like a very complicated song. Robinson's number eight laxative shoe. What? That went through you like a bloody Ferrari. And it's a horrible family who are classified as lower middle, their social Mm. class. (laughs) And you go, oh. It's a mm. bit sneery. Mm. Oh, you're trying to get a bit... I, I watched it with my woke glasses on. I went, oh, mm. university-educated middle-class people having a go at the working classes. Yeah. And then you realise that the second awful family who have beaten them. <laughs> well, with the scores all in from the judges, the Garibaldis are number three, and a surprise at number two, the Fanshawe Chumleys of Berkshire. <laughs> And yeah. the thing, which I didn't realise I looked up, that year, this is 1974, November, December mm. 1974, earlier that year, The Family mm. had been aired on TV, the, the first ever Fly on the Wall reality show, yeah. about a lower middle class yeah. family. The problem was to find a family prepared to tolerate the intrusion by a film crew into their every private moment. We carried out many interviews, and finally, one family emerged that we hope can meet the demands of this documentary serial, The Wilkins of Reading. And this appears to be the absolute horror of Britain Mm. seeing itself on screen. It's so odd, though, that sketch, because in reality, it's still set in Monty Python's surreal world in which Graham Chapman's weird teenage daughter with the beehive is actually a member of Parliament. (laughs) (laughs) I'm off! What time are you coming back tonight? 3 a.m. 
I think it's disgusting. You're a member of Parliament. Every single Monty Python joke has the potential to fracture the reality of the sketch in a way that most sketch writing doesn't. Mm. You could say something next that would break it. And the joy of Python is you've agreed, the contract is you enter it and you go, this is Monty Python land, mm. where that woman, that weird beehive lipsticked, yeah. 11 foot tall monster can be a member of parliament yeah. and it doesn't break the sketch. No, it doesn't. I accept that the mum can be ironing the telephone and hanging up the yes. flattened cat. Yeah. The fact that there's a man in the cupboard who's someone else's dad. Yeah. Dad? Yeah? No, no, my dad. Oh. Dad? All that stuff which belongs completely to N.F. Simpson, absurdist theatre. Absolutely, yeah. Don't say you're ready, Sylvia, at last. Ready? With my arms like this? Whatever you may say about apes, at least they don't have to bend down practically to the floor before they can reach their knees. Arms like apes, if you please. That's what she wants now. Couldn't run to it, Sylvia. Need a whole new set of glands. You're yeah. bringing something from absurdist theatre onto TV, and you're right. This feels like the closest Python gets to its roots yeah. in absurdism, in surrealism. Yeah. Same with that other craze. When she wanted to be a pterodactyl. Without needing John Cleese's rigorous... Uh, if you say she's a member of the Parliament, it kind of spoils the point. <laughs> Is she or isn't she a member of Parliament? And has Faye done away? definitely said yes. It's a suspended reality yeah. where she's both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shut up! Yes, Mum! When Terry Jones died, I tweeted probably my most favourite line of Terry Jones, which is from season two, and he's doing a vox pop about his daughter, who's gone to become a lobbyist. And he says, Well, she's broken our hearts, the little bastard. She's been nothing but trouble, and if she comes on here again, I'll kick her teeth in. Like that, just proper passion. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes into the house, and Michael Penning's there usually stuffing a chicken, as he normally is. <laughs> and she says, Have you been talking to television again, dear? Yes, I've bloody told him. What about? And he goes, Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. <sighs> All the passion's gone, and his actual... Reason for being has gone. Oh, it's, my God. It's just disappeared. I oh, love what? it. Morning, Mrs. Robinson. Morning, Mrs. Non-Robinson. Been shopping? No. I've been shopping. What did you buy? A piston engine. What did you buy that for? It was a bargain. You rubbish. The reason why this feels different to me is I still relate it back to the first time I bought it. Right. Because Monty Python 1 to 3 was given a big trumpeted fanfare in the evening and I would... Yeah. prepare for it, you know, get the video recorder ready, prepare Put on your, your correct uniform. The major's uniform. <laughs> um, and, and more often than not, I would be watching it with my family. But this was different because what I did was, and it's so weird to remember these things, but I grew up in Barking and Chadwell Heath and I used to go to Romford HMV to get my VHSs and just browsing, you know, as normal, Series 4, two tapes, Series 4. I was like, what? Why didn't anybody say anything? Wow. <laughs> Nothing. And it also, it was obviously distributed by some, I don't know who, Virgin? I've no idea. Somebody yeah. who just said, is that not on VHS? Of the BBC yeah. not? Oh, okay. Well, we'll just knock it out. And of course, they're very bad covers and, you know, been put together, not by Python or Gilliam. And taking them home and watching them on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, <laughs> knowing that no one else... It's a different watched. vibe. Different vibe. So it, even when I, even just watching it recently, it still had that Wednesday afternoon, nobody else knows about this vibe. It does feel like that. There is a sort of forbidden thing. Because yeah, again, yeah. as the remarketing of Python goes on and the new view is that you just want the best of. 
You just want yeah. the cream of it. And then maybe the films. We've grown up now as a culture enough that we can say just the wheat and no chaff. Mm. We'll just pick the best of this. We've got this band called The Beatles, but they've got a blue album and a red album. Mm. And the rest <laughs> of it is pretty disposable. Mm. That is what happens with these things, where mm. they become culturally iconic, is that you will discover them mm. as a next generation in the way that the Britpop guys found Revolver. It's a brilliant thing that David Quantic said about Revolver, is none of it's on the red and blue albums. Oh, it's right. the record where none of that stuff's on the greatest hits of the Beatles. So a generation discovers it, and that gives you Oasis. You create a huge excitement about a very familiar thing by finding the album that slipped through the cracks. Yeah, This feels like the deep cuts. It does, yeah. And yeah. ownership is so important for fandom. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if someone told me there was another Beatle record, yeah. it would be my favourite Beatle record, in the way that lots yeah. of Beatles fans suddenly went mad recently for Beatles for sale. Right. The record that they said was the shit one. Right. I mean, it's great. It's great. No, Why is it great? Because mm. I don't know it off by heart. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. not sucked all the juice out of yeah. this one. For something which has been so over-marketed in a kind of spam-a-lot compilation yeah. of the best of spammy parrots stuff, yeah, yeah. this hasn't been sucked dry. It's still got some no. juice in it. Now, Gervaise, do sing me a song. Oh, okay. Something woody. <laughs> Oh, she's going to marry him! Oh, crikey. Oh, Sean's finished her off. Do you know what it's called? It's called Monty Python. Yeah. Like the Beatles' secret record you discover in <laughs> yeah. It's called The Beatles. The Beatles, yeah. And he goes, yeah. has it got any hits on it? No, yeah. the White Album's got no hits on it. What? Oh, my God. This is probably the best one. Yeah, this will be the best, definitely. This is Monty Python's White Album, isn't yeah. it? It's the, one that, yeah, <laughs> it's the one that hasn't got anything on the greatest hits. Exactly. So stumbling across it in a Romford HMV, yeah, it, it's it's almost like they they were doing it for me, like yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, like you know where that, that sketch where they tried to confuse a cat by putting the theatre in the <laughs> yeah. garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like they it's like they did that. It's like they did that for me. Well, I think I can definitely say that your cat badly needs to be confused. What? Shh. What? Confused. To shake it out of its state of complacency. Yeah, and also, because this is just for you, there's a sense of, of going, well, it doesn't make much sense, this one, so maybe this is the one that's just for me. Yeah. It does feel private, this one. Yeah. And now, back to me. Hello. And now it's time to go over to Hugh Delaney at Paynton. Hello and welcome to Paynton, because it's from Paynton that we take you straight back to the studio. Hello. And it's from here we go over there. Well, we're already here, so let's go over there. Welcome back. I love a good climactic ending. I love the young one's bus. Mm. I love Vic Reeves being shot at the end of Vic Reeves' big night. <laughs> I, I love, you know, I don't just want things to end. I want them to yeah. yeah, really nice big production values. <laughs> and this <laughs> and this absolute mess of a series ends like <laughs> like it they like it stop. was gonna carry on. Just but stop. No, we just stopped. And now it's time for part eight of our series about the life and work of Ursula Hitler, the Surrey housewife who revolutionized British beekeeping in the 1930s. They go into a sketch and then they abandon it. Then they go back to it. <laughs> then, they, then they insert something else. And for some reason, you can hear a tuba. And then it just goes. <laughs> There's yeah. no reason for it. It is the high point of their messiness. Yeah. And, and, and then Michael Palin says, That was a party political broadcast on behalf of the Liberal Party. <laughs> And then just breaks into laughter. It ends with laughter. Ends with laughter and it fades out. And it feels so right, so correct. But watching it on that VHS, 
yeah. coming to an end and rewinding. I thought, oh my God, it felt like a loss, proper loss. It's like, oh, there's nothing else We've now. Run out. I've, I've run out. I've got, I've got all the books. I've got all the albums. I've watched the films. That's it now. That, that's Graham Chapman's dead. Graham Chapman, co-author of the Parrot Sketch, is no more. He has ceased to be. The rest of life, he rests in peace. He died, was it one day before the 20th anniversary? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. The 20th anniversary of Monty Python didn't really mean very much to me. It seemed too conventional, too neat, not nearly arbitrary enough for Monty Python. But Graham's death changed all that. Suddenly I found myself wanting to look back and celebrate all the things that we did together. You know, I can still remember, you know, getting ready for school and it being on the BBC News. Yeah. Devastating. And yeah. I just, I, I, uh, and once that episode had finished, that was it. There was nothing, there's, there's definitely not going to be anything new. That 1999 BBC Two Python night with Eddie Izzard, mm. that never sat well with me. They were dressed as Gumbies and it wasn't quite right. It's, it's almost like, you know, it's traditional. It's the yeah. tradition. It's the, it's the Pythonic, which it must never, it's ever be. It's got to be a mess. Yeah, it's got to be a mess. Right. On with the pixie hats! And order in the scape of vicar! It's great that it ends with the title saying that was a part of political broadcast on behalf of the Liberal Party, because that is the joke with Monty Python. Monty Python, you forget this as well. You forget what it must have looked like when it came out. I was looking at the titles for these. One's called The Gold Major Ballooning. One's called Hamlet. In the Radio Times, these listings will say Hamlet <laughs> or part of the political broadcast on behalf of the yeah. Liberal Party. The idea about Python is supposed to break into your regular viewing, mm. disrupt it by pretending to be other things. One of the things we didn't get growing up watching this is that when it went out, people really did interview each other on blue psych sets in two metal framed chairs. Mm. Normal television, like this. Yeah. This was indistinguishable. This was as convincing as those brilliant uh, Harry Enfield or Victoria Wood mock docs. Or, uh, mm. This had the same crew and budget mm. as real television had. Mm. It didn't look like sketches, it mm. was meant to interrupt television, disrupt it, skewer all its cliches. And I love the way it ends with claiming to be something it isn't. Mm. That was a party political <laughs> cast. And them cracking up, because the whole joke from the beginning, it's not a flying circus. Mm. Yes. It's not a circus. No. <laughs> it's not owned by someone called Monty Python, some showbiz agent. Yeah. Everything about this is saying you've tuned in to watch something and it will trip you up and it will be unexpected. Mm. And maybe that sense of sadness at the end is going... Oh, don't stop. Yeah. Carry on. I remember an interview with Ben Elton in the Omnibus documentary, which was he can remember not wanting the show to end. And sometimes they would have the BBC Globe at the yeah. end and then say, and now it's time for something else. And you'd realise you're still watching Monty Python and the next thing is just another sketch. George Harrison said it was one of the few things that made the world make sense. Mm. The fact they disrupted it and put nonsense in. Yeah. The rest of television and the claims that these people, the politicians and the experts and the authors and the filmmakers were serious. That was the problem. Mm. It was that inside the asylum, outside the asylum idea yeah. that Douglas Adams had. Going, the idea is this is supposed to be a, a little madhouse, mm. but actually by saying everyone's mad, 
Mm. They're the only sane people. And then by framing it and having the framing very blurred, that the titles would it would go the end at the beginning. But they do a thing where suddenly it goes Thames at the beginning. And you forget it would have sat seamlessly within the run of everything else. Yeah, yeah. It didn't look like 16 mil, overcast, weird Python. No, land. no. It was actually part of your television viewing. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's the sadness at the end of it, is they go, we've finished now. We've, we've, we've done all that. We're mm. not going to provide this service for you. Mm. We're not going to do this. I felt that. I thought, I wish... Maybe the day-to-day was the closest it was for me growing up. Will someone do the same job for the television for my generation and mm. make me never be able to watch it seriously again? You want to feel that someone's pointing out the sensible people are mad. Well, I, I don't suppose there's much we can do, really. Not on television, no. <laughs> the one thing you don't want to happen when you've been given that opportunity is for it to stop. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about here with your finding the VHSs. Yes. You thought it had stopped. Yeah. And then someone said, do you know what? There's more. That was my holy grail, Charles. It was in uh, HMV in Romford. <laughs> not Harrods, <laughs> not Harrods after all. No, not you, Harrods. And it was interesting, actually, because that HMV was almost uh, like in some, some sort of Victorian house, and I had to go upstairs. Records were on. It was, yeah, converted. So it was all the records were on the first floor, and the VHSs were in some sort of weird <laughs> bedroom. <laughs> so it's almost like they've hidden it away. You're going into like an attic and you're finding a thing that, that no one else knew was there. It mm. belongs entirely to you. It's a, it's a treasure. Mm. You have to dig up. And of course, when you dig it up, it's the forbidden mm. series. It's the one. It's that one. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing in the forbidden, non-existent Monty Python <laughs> series, Monty Python. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. That was a party political podcast <laughs> on behalf of the Liberal Party. <laughs> Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the cheese. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>